being together, eating good food, uh, uh, supporting a good cause. So uh, thank you guys so much. So 2002 was a big year in Utah. How many of you were here and alive in Utah in 2002? What happened in 2002 in Utah? The Olympics, right? Like the world converged on Utah. And it was a huge deal. I remember watching that. We actually, Nicole was pregnant with Ian. And so we watched the 2002 Olympics uh, with my pregnant wife uh, in Oklahoma in ice storms. It was kind of crazy. So, um, but, but fun times, right? If you remember leading up to the 2002 Olympics for the world converging to the Utah Rockies, a lot of work needed to be done. Right? Because Utah, Salt Lake City had a 150-year-old infrastructure. Like the utility system was 150 years old. Our, our roads were outdated. We had no pa- major transit system. Uh, there wasn't the right facilities and venues and things like that. So nothing that a little bit of money couldn't cure, right? Two and a half billion dollars went into getting Utah ready to host the 2002 Olympics. And that was to put in the light rail system downtown to redo the infrastructure. They were talking about how one of the main streets, there was like a 30-foot, you know, deep hole in the street to put in the, the transit system, and, and everything was just renovated, right? I mean, even now, you know, uh, 21 years later, that makes you feel old, right? Uh, you still see the marks of that. You still see all I-15 and, and all the roads and, and all the venues that were left after that that we still get to use today, right? There was so much preparation that went into this event. And I think it gives us a great picture of what's going on this morning in the passage that we're looking to in the Gospel of Matthew. John the Baptist is is getting us ready for this king. Last week we talked about how there's this new king, and he's bringing a new kingdom. And and this morning we're going to see how we need to be prepared for it. Are we ready for this new king Jesus now and forever? To be honest, it's probably not something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, right? We kind of go on autopilot. We do what we're told. We're, you know, we kind of uh, go what makes us happy, what makes us feel important, what pe- makes us feel noticed and fulfilled, and, and all these things like that, right? We think about ourselves. We don't think about this king coming and what it means to be ready for him. This morning, we're going to look at some of the preparations that come in getting ready for this new King Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4. Let's dive right in because this stuff is good. All right. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was this, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, His voice is, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Now, what's interesting is that John the Baptist was Jesus' first cousin, right? He's the one when, when uh, the two Prego moms get together, uh, uh, John is like literally doing flips in, in his mother's womb because he knew that the promised Messiah, the Savior, this king, was, was just a couple, you know, layers away, right? And so John, already as an as, uh, uh, unborn baby, knows that something is about to happen, right? 
And so what's crazy is that in the Old Testament, you have all these prophets that are prophesying hundreds of years away of this coming Messiah, this, this king, this, this, uh, this uh, savior, right? And, and that was their hope. That was their identity as a people group, as a nation, as a religion, that things are rough now, but they won't always be. There will be a Messiah that comes to set things straight. And so you have all these Old Testament prophets that are prophesying what's cool is that they were kind of an eccentric group, right? And, um, and we're going to see uh, that in just a little bit. Now we have a modern-day prophet pointing Jesus is, is here. This is thir- about 30 years after the birth of Jesus, and John is like, prepare the way. Now, now that's a very important thing because he says repent. We talked before about repent. Basically, repenting is seeing where we're going for what it really is, right? Like a lot of times we're just blindly going forward and we do what feels right. We do what's natural. Well, that's not always good. And so repenting is seeing the movie of playing out the movie of where we're going and saying, I don't want that. I want this. And so we repent. We turn. It's a change of mind and direction. We want to turn towards what Jesus has. We're, we're drawn to Jesus, and there's literally a change that takes place, and there's this transformation. And that's what J- uh, John is saying, repent, because the king is here. Now, he uses this Old Testament uh, prophecy that says, prepare the way, right? Clear the roads. Make the... That was a custom when a king was coming to your town. There was a massive building project like the early 2000s in Utah. They would literally straighten out the roads, level the roads. They would clear obstacles. They would get rid of dangerous things. They wanted people to be able to come in and see the king where the king to get there without any obstacle. And so it is an active thing of preparing for Jesus to come into our lives. Okay? We can go a lot of, we can go pretty deep with that, but it's there. Let's keep on moving. Verses four through six. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. That's kind of gross. It's kind of, you know, but hey, he's living in a desert. He's not making an income. That's what poor people ate. We think, ooh, honey. But he literally would go and shoo away the, the, the bees, and he would go take their honey, and he would catch, he would catch the, the, the locusts. And that's what he ate because he had no other resources. This is very Old Testament prophet-esque things going on here. People from Jerusalem, from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Again, he's saying, hey, this Messiah, this king, he is, he is here. He is here. And so people would repent. And as soon as they repented, they'd get baptized. And baptizing is, is being prepared for this coming king. Verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Sorry, I should have been pounding it right there, right? That's kind of harsh stuff. What's going on here? 
He's basically talking to, he sees these Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the two religious leadership groups of the day. The Pharisees gave their life to knowing, following, and teaching, and making sure that everybody else followed the law too. Every aspect of their life was governed by the law of that religion. In fact, they, they viewed themselves as the keeper of that law. So if you want to keep people from getting, breaking that law, what do you do? You build a fence around that law to keep people from getting. Well, if one fence is good, two fences are better. And so that we won't even get, if, if two is good, three is better, right? You get where I'm going with this? They had laws about laws about laws about laws about laws. Because the more you could follow the law, if every aspect of your life was controlled by this law, you wouldn't violate the law, and you can do it. You can control it. That's up to you. Like you, you can make yourself good with God by obeying every aspect of the law. They viewed themselves as being right with God by following the law. The Sadducees were kind of interesting. They actually stopped when the temple was destroyed about 40 years later. They ceased to exist because they weren't really a religious movement. They were a socio-political movement. They didn't even believe in the spiritual realm, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so that's the old Sunday school joke. Why do you call them Sadducees? Because they don't believe in the res resurrection, so they're sad, you see. There you go. I had really good Sunday school teachers growing up. There you go. But they were the rich. They were elite. They were the upper echelon. The, and what's interesting, they didn't even believe in heaven. But they were tasked with running the temple. That's interesting. Because as long as they went through the motions, the religious performances of the day, they were good. They could feel happy. They had done a good deed that day, right? And they could control what's going on right here, right now. And they didn't believe in anything after life and death. What's interesting is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were pitted against each other. That's great. You have a religion being ran by two groups that are like diametrically opposed to each other, right? Um, but look what's happening here. You bring in Jesus, this disruptor of the religious system. Well, that'll unify him. The only thing that unifies them is opposition to Jesus. Kind of ironic. Now, what he says, you brood of snakes or you brood of vipers, that's a lot more than what it even sounds like 2,000 years later. Because two things. One, snakes spew poison. Snakes spew poison. And that's what he said, you Pharisees and you Sadducees, you are spewing poison into the lives of these people. And there's something even more like of a, of a dig right there. Snakes were unclean. And so John says, you people who think that you are so all that and more, you're so righteous and you're so good and you're all that, you, you know, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. He goes, you're unclean. The people who were the only ones clean enough to get into certain levels of the temple were unclean, he says. He was destroying the whole structure of what they believe, right? He critiques that they talk the talk, but then they go through the motions, but their hearts don't know or love God at all. Religious activity and devotion does not equal love for or relationship with God. I'm going to say that again. Religious activity or devotion does not equal love for or relationship with God. What really matters is if our words and our actions are aligned with our beliefs and that our belief is Jesus and Jesus alone. We need to pursue Jesus 
wholly and, and, and completely, right? Like we want, to, we want to surrender to him. Jesus looks beyond our words and our religious activities and our statements and things like that. He wants to see what's really in our hearts. Verse 11. I baptize them, John says, with water. Uh, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that, I don't, that I'm not worthy even to be his slave or to carry his sandals. He continues that. He says that again in John chapter thir- uh, 3, verse 30. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. Like he says, the whole point of my life isn't to make a name for myself. It's to point to the name of Jesus. Can you imagine how radically different our lives would be if we would just let go of that? If we would say the point of my life, hey, I, I, you know, I hope that, that people love me and accept me and, and respect me, but not because of me. It's because I want them to see Jesus more and more. I want to fade out, and I want Jesus to become the center stage, right? I love that. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is such a powerful thing. Baptism, we say, is an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. You look at people that were repenting, they were turning, they were wanting to say, okay, this new king is here, I want to be all in, I'm going to repent of where my, my, my past is, and I want, to, I want to surrender my future to him, and I want to, to receive that new life in the future. And so they, they get baptized, because it's, it's, it's demonstrating what Jesus has done, and it's sharing the story of what God has done in us. That's a pretty powerful passage. And then in verse 12, says, he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Ouch. Again, I could skip over this verse, but it's there. Here's the point. I, I really believe God doesn't send people to hell. He says, if you don't want me here on earth, why would I force myself on you for eternity? People would say, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? And I would say, I don't think he really does. I think he grieves that that is our choice. Because if Nicole doesn't want me in her life, if I say, well, you don't have to have me in your life now, but I get you for all eternity, that's not heaven for her. <laughs> right? I mean, it would be, but she doesn't realize that that would be heaven. That's just keeping it real. Verse 13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. Can you believe it? John's kind of like, no, 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 Jesus, Jesus, don't let me baptize you. I am the one who needs you to be baptized by you, he says. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it, would be, it, it should be done, for we, must, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his, baptize, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened. Now, the Greek word here is, is actually um, is anoigo. Uh, Matthew uses this word here, but in Mark's gospel, he actually uses the word schizo. Anoigo is basically just opening, like you would open a door or open a window, things like that. Schizo is more aggressive and more violent. It's ripping, it's rending, it's tearing. What's interesting is that later on, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the word schizo, 
when they're talking about the curtain, the veil in the temple, the Holy of Holies, that was supposed to separate everybody except for one high priest that could get to that to make sacrifices for all of, all of the people of Israel, right? Only one person could go in there. And they literally would do that, I think, like once a year. And what they do is they would literally tie a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if all of a sudden, for any reason, he would have a health issue or something like that, he would be struck dead. No one would have to go in after them. They'd be like, hey, are you in there? Come on, John, come on, where are you at? We better pull him out, right? So they'd pull him out because nobody except for one high priest was worthy to go through the veil of the temple to the Holy of Holies. And all three of those Gospels record that from the top to the bottom. Why top to the bottom? Because the thing is like 60 feet tall. Who could have gotten up there in the moment that Jesus died on the cross and ripped that thing? And not to mention that that curtain was indestructible. It was so thick that no human hands could just rip it like that. Not even the old strongmen that would rip phone books in half, right? Like it had to be something divine. That is the word schizo that is mentioned in, in, uh, Matthew, in, in Mark's gospel when he says the heavens were schizoed. The heavens were wrenched open. They were ripped. This is a cataclysmic moment in the history of humanity. Something profound is happening. Something is opening and changing. And by the way, this is a very Trinitarian moment because you have Jesus the Son who has the presence of the Spirit coming, and then the Father says, this is my Son of whom I will pleased, right? Like, what a tender moment of all three being together. And it's kind of like, hey, good to see you guys again. Yeah, you know, like all three are together right here. So Jesus is baptized publicly. It's an outward demonstration of an inward identity. And then he goes for some testing, Chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Some, the word actually kind of means tested, but uh, tempted or tested there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. Now, what's interesting is that it's, it's, it's weird to think that Jesus was hungry, right? Because, well, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. Philippians 2 says that he poured out his, his, his divinity, right? Like he's still fully God, but he's not clinging to that anymore. He experiences hunger pains. He experiences exhaustion. He experiences tiredness. I have gone maybe a day or two without eating. I can't imagine going 40 days. But here is Satan, the very same tempter who tested Adam and Eve in the perfect garden, right? They were living in perfection of creation, and he comes and tests them in that, and they fail. But here's Jesus in the sin-ravaged wilderness, hungry, tired, alone, probably having all sorts of different thoughts going through his, hand, his, his head, and in the same way Jesus, or sorry, Satan tests and tempts Jesus to align with him because that's what sin is, is it's a temptation to align ourselves with Satan instead of aligning ourselves with God and his design. Now, here's a note. When does Satan attack? When we're alone, when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we have so much going through our mind that we don't know what's going on, right? Am I the only one that can identify with that? Probably most of us. We need to know the warning signs of when Satan is going to attack us, and it's when, when we are being stressed out, right? 
We need to be ready. So how does Jesus handle this? The first one, uh, Satan comes with three different temptations. Verses three and four. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan tests him with pleasure to meet his desires, his needs, his own way, and on his own power instead of relying on God. Now, what's funny is that why is Jesus out there fasting? The whole point of fasting is to be tested. And so Satan is kind of like, hey, you're hungry. Just tell these stones to become bread and you're fine. And it's kind of like, but that would defeat the whole purpose of fasting. I mean, we think about how illogical that is, but yet it makes sense in Satan's scheme to say, eh, that's a good effort, but you deserve something on your own right now. Just take this for yourself, right? Jesus refutes that by saying that his true joy, satisfaction, sustenance is in God and his word alone. Verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. So first he tests him with pleasure. If that didn't work, now he goes to power. He takes him, ironically, to Jerusalem, the promised city of God, the holy city of God. Where in the city of Jerusalem? To the temple, to the house of God. And he takes him to the highest point. What's interesting is that there was a point of the temple that most likely overlooked this, this cliff. And, and he's, he's looking all over and he says, just jump off and order the angels to come to you, right? What's so interesting is that Jesus calls him out and he says, no, 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 no. This is not the time. This is not God's design yet. I'm going to wait. I'm not going to take power for myself for this short-sighted game of yours. What's so ironic is that a couple years later, what would he be doing? He would be on top of a hill demonstrating his true power. Not by jumping off of a temple, but by dying on a cross. By overcoming sin and death now and forever. Not by accomplishing amazing feats of religion. Now, notice this is the second time, right? What is Satan doing? He's using scripture to test and to tempt Jesus. In fact, Satan memorizes scripture. He, just, he knew scripture just well enough to be able to say, hey, the Bible says this, you should do it. Jesus knows scripture well enough to combat the misuse of it. There's a lot that we can learn from that, right? We need to be, one, putting God's word into our heart, into our mind, but then, two, we need to make sure that we have a good understanding of it. Because we can cherry-pick a couple verses here and there, and we can make a really good-sounding, well, the Bible says, but yet he also says you shouldn't test God. Yeah, you can do this, but why would we put God to the test? We need to make sure that we're not just memorizing it, but we're surrendering to it, we're obeying it, we're living it out as it was meant to be. Verses 8 through 10. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. 
So first we have pleasure, that didn't work. He goes to power, that didn't work. So then what does he go? Pride. Pleasure, power, and pride. What was his first temptation to Adam and Eve in the garden? You can become like God. Why are you worshiping God when you should be worshiped? You can become just like, you can become a God. That was the first temptation. And what does he do here to Jesus? Hey, just bow down to me and I'll give all this. All this glory would be yours. It's not his to give. See, that's the deception of Satan is he promises us stuff. He has no power and authority to deliver. He doesn't own the world. He temporarily has, has, has some authority in it just because it was given to him by Jesus for a time being, but it's still God's and God's alone. You see, Satan isn't that creative. He uses the same lies over and over and over again. The problem is he doesn't have to be creative because these lies seem to work on us. We fall for the same things over and over again, pleasure, power, and pride. But Jesus refutes it, and he stands up to it. He passes the test, and then verse 11, the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. Here's the big idea of this passage. Are we ready for Jesus now and forever? Here's three things in this passage that kind of show us how to get ready for Jesus. Number one, first word out of John's mouth, repent. Now, I know, again, that's such an old school. Some of us might are kind of like, repent, right? Like, but it's, it's a biblical concept. Let's demystify it. If there's, if there's abuse that has come from that before, if you've ever been put on the spot, if you've ever been uh, manipulated with that, please surrender that to God because that's not the heart of it. Repenting is not accusation. Repenting is not control. Repenting is not something that's mean or unfair. Repent is freedom. Think about it. If we hold on to all the things that we've done, all the things that we're afraid of, all the things that we're ashamed of, all the things that, that we're insisting on that I can do this and I'm that, and we get so far down that road, guess what? We are, we are pulling a massive backpack with us. And we're holding on to all these things and we're like, the, no, I got it, I got it, I got it. We don't got it. Repenting is basically allowing God, allowing Jesus to cut those straps to where we're set free from all the things that enslave us. Repenting is not a bad thing. It's a freeing thing. It's admitting that with God that, hey, you know what? I'm insisting on this, and this is not good. This is not giving me life. This is not okay. I want to stop going down this path that's going to lead towards destruction, and I want to experience freedom. I want to be set free from all these things. Now, what's crazy is that re repenting actually can reveal, sorry, the, the testing and the trials can actually reveal what's holding us down. We don't like to think about that, right? Like, what do you, what do, you do when you take, when you, when you go in for a, for a physical um, to get, like, say, life insurance or something like that? They put you through a battery of tests. They're going to poke you, prod you, run you, hang you, whatever they're going to do, right? I mean, they're going to, I don't even know what they do. I haven't gotten mine yet, but, but they're going to they're gonna stress test you because stress reveals what's really going on. We can make it look like we're okay, and we can go through the motions, but we're hiding what's really going on underneath. Testing, trials, struggles, even temptation can reveal what's really going on in our hearts, what's really going on in our minds, 
the things that are trying to hold on to us that we need to let go of. Sometimes the toughest times and the, or can be the biggest times of growth. Think about that. The hardest times that we will go through can be the most, the most significant times of growth in our life. So, with that logic, if I'm being tested, if I'm going through struggles, if I'm going through temptations, am I running away from it? And if I'm running away from it, how am I missing out on what God wants to do in and through my life? How am I missing out on seeing what, what Jesus wants to do in me, but also how am I blocking what he can do through my experience right now? So repenting is turning away from and turning to. This is dealing with our past. Second is surrender. Surrendering is basically relying on Jesus's grace and his word. This is about our future, right? I repent. I turn away from the past. I surrender. That's my future. Our beliefs and our convictions are only as strong as they can hold up under the pressures of reality. Think about that. I can say I believe something, but if in pressures of reality I do something completely contrary, that's what I really believe. We talked about it a, a while back in, at men's group. Uh, someone wisely said, um, we always act out of our true beliefs. Well, I don't really believe that. Why do we do that? Because that's what we really believe under the surface. So we want to surrender to God, his grace, and his word. So number one, are we devoting God's word into our hearts and into our minds? And then number two, are we align, aligning our lives to it? So repent, that's our past. Surrender, that's our future. And third and last, take action. Take action. Belief and faith was not meant to be something that stays up here. It's something that's supposed to be lived out. We can say that we're Christian, but if our lives show no signs of following Jesus, what do we really believe? Our actions, it says faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean that our works complete our faith. It means that it's proof of our faith. I can say I believe something, but if my life is totally contrary, it reveals what I really believe. So for some of us, it means baptism, right? Have you been baptized? That's a great opportunity. If you, if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm a follower, I love Jesus, I know he loves me, get baptized. It's a great way to publicly declare what Christ has done in and through you. We identify with the, with the death of our sin and the resurrection towards new life, right? For others, it means that we need to identify as a follower of Jesus, as a servant of Jesus, as a missionary of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus. Like, that is who we are. We're not just an IT guy or a teacher or or, or an athlete, or a, a dad, or a mom, or a child, or whatever. Who are we in Christ? We are a follower, a servant, we're a missionary, we're a disciple. Jesus is alive and well, and he is active in our world. Are we joining in with what he's doing? Are we letting him direct us? So, this morning, moving from belief to action, knowing to doing. One question. Do we practice a regretful confession? What do I mean by that? Oops, I did it again. Sorry, yeah, I, I, I refrain from singing that one, sorry. <laughs> but you can imagine it. There we go, sorry. Ruin the moment, Jason, where to go? But that's, what, that's, that's the problem, is a lot of us like, oops, I got caught, right? And then we, and then we go right back into it. It's sort of like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But we never change what's really going on. We never get to the, to the core of the issue. 
We never surrender. We never, we never repent. We never surrender. We never say, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to live this out right now, right? We have to move beyond a regretful confession to a true repentance, to turn from going towards sin and away from God to going towards God and away from sin, experiencing that freedom. This morning, we get to close out, if the worship team wants to come up, this morning we're going to close out by observing communion. This is the good news of Jesus. The fact that, yeah, we're tested, we have struggles, we have, we have things that maybe we're not proud of, that we're ashamed of, or things that we've done or have been done to us, or regrets that we have, whatever it is that, that, that we might have carried with us this morning. Jesus says, I paid the price for that on the cross. I give forgiveness, I give freedom, I give life, I give meaning, I give purpose. And so Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. For some of us, that sounds really, really weird. For some of us, it also is kind of like, yeah, I've heard it all my life, but what does that mean? It basically means that there was a covenant relationship that was made, an agreement, an irrefutable, undeniable agreement that God said, if I mess up, it's on me. If you mess up, it's still on me. I paid the price for this. And all you have to do is receive it, surrender to it. And so that's why we do communion. There's nothing magical or mystical. You don't have to have membership. We don't even have membership. All you have, this is an open table. If you love Jesus and if you have put your faith in him, if you have surrendered to him, then this is for you. This, if this is your first time, if this is your act of giving your life to Jesus, because communion is repenting, right? It's, it's, it's recognizing something was wrong that I need help with. That I, that I need to surrender to God. It's, it's repenting and it's surrendering and then it's taking action. That's the beauty of communion. If that's where you're at this morning, again, like I said, if it's your first time, awesome. Let us know. Tell me afterwards. Or if it's meaningful, if this is a, a, a kind of a recalibration, a realignment in your heart and your mind, praise God. That's what this is all about. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to play. And, and as you want, you can come on up here. You can take, take the bread and dip it in one of the cups. And, and, and when you do that, just, just, you know, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So when you do that, if you just want to just, you can say it out loud. You can say it in your mind or whatever. Just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Whatever else he lays on your heart, whatever else is on your heart that you want to get off to him. Or if there's something that you need to hear from him, just listen. That's what I love about the table of communion is that, is that this is a time of experiencing a tangible expression of his grace. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that, that you came, that you dwelled amongst us. You, you, you were one of us. You identified with us. You experienced hunger. You experienced tiredness. You experienced temptation. God, you, you experience that, and so you grieve with us as we experience it today. But God, we also know that you experience it with joy, with hope, with perspective, with power. 
God, in the same power that you experienced it with, you, you engaged it with 2,000 years ago, is still alive and well. So this morning, God, I pray that as, as we get to come to your table, whatever it is that we might be struggling with, whatever it is that's heavy on our heart or heavy on our mind, God, help us to lay that down. Nothing is more powerful than you. You created this world. You created this, this galaxy. You created all things. So nothing we will ever experience is more powerful than you. God, help us to put our trust, our faith, our belief, our hope in you, in you alone. Help us to be transformed. God, if you want to transform us miraculously, if there's things that we're struggling with that, that God, you want to just... You just want to deliver us from that right here, right now? Awesome. Let's go. But God, if it's just one more step closer to you, awesome. Let's go. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the power of your spirit. God, we surrender this time to you. Amen.